0: All right, today, talking about waiting. Now, everybody in the room has to do this. Has to, you never escape having to wait. And I put up a couple of pictures that I want to share with you. One's coming up with the Christmas, and we had a calendar growing up like the one on your All's Left, Christmas Countdown. You'd move the mouse every day, and eventually you'd get to Christmas Eve. Now, the thing I like about this is you realize that you're waiting for a specific time that is coming, and it makes the waiting a little easier, right? I know in 25 days, boom, it's going to be Christmas. However, there's also a type of waiting that's a little bit more difficult. The picture to the right, you have Coach Weiss and Boomer Esiason, And a team called the Houston Oilers that is no longer around. They've moved, and another team's moved in. But this is the last time the Bengals have won a playoff game. It was January of 1991. Some of you were not even alive. It's over 30 years ago since the Bengals won a playoff game. And we're waiting as a city for another victory. But we don't know if that day will ever come, all right? And that makes waiting hard. And so today we're going to look at some things that we will be waiting for. and How do we wait in a way that glorifies God? You could say it's waiting to the glory of God. And I think we live in a day and time where we are some of the most impatient people that have ever walked this planet. I want you to think about it. If you want to go to a city, you don't have to walk there. You can catch a bus, you can drive there. You could fly halfway across the world and get there in less than a day. And we get mad when we have to wait at a long red light. Or you can go with food. Today, uh, Andrew's teaching the kids, he's teaching them about sacrifice. Tough lesson to teach kids, so if you got a child upstairs, you might have to do some uh, some damage control. But you used to have to wait for food. Whether you planted a crop or prepared an animal, there was no such thing as fast food, but now you have fast food on every corner. And if you want it even faster, you can microwave it. And sometimes we get anxious Waiting on the microwave. One thing that we do not do well as a people is wait. And that's not new to us. That's been throughout history. People have failed miserably when it comes to waiting on God. And it's difficult. It's hard when you're waiting on God, wondering, does He hear you? Is He going to answer you? Is this going to go the way that I want it to go? And so... Today, I want us to look at David, last few chapters of 1 Samuel, and let's see how he waited in a way that brought glory to God. Um, So I'm going to skip to the back real quick and go over the four points because I think this is helpful as we go through half of 1 Samuel. First thing, those who wait on God are consumed with the glory of God. Those who wait on God will be consumed with the glory of God. And what you're going to see, David is going after God. It's about making much of God. But Saul, the current king, is about his own kingdom, about his own plans, about keeping his own power. One man was consumed with the glory of God. Another was consumed with the glory of himself. You cannot, you cannot wait in a way that glorifies God if, if it's about you. All right, so I want you to see that as we go through these next few chapters. Number two. Those who wait on God, and we'll come back to this at the end of the message. Those who wait on God are connected to the people of God. Those who are able to wait on God are going to be those who are connected to the people of God. And what happens is people encourage one another in God. They help us build our faith. They help us get through tough times. They help us make right decisions when things are tough. We want to take matters into our own hands. We are a people that are in desperate need of others. Thirdly, those who wait on God are content with the presence of God. Those who wait on God are content with the presence of God. You're going to see, no matter where David goes, God's with him. And that makes waiting on him possible. It's not an absent God that doesn't care about David. It's a God that's present, that's with him, that's working all things according to his good and perfect plan. So if you're going to be able to wait on God, you have to remember and be content that He's with you, content with the presence of God. And then finally, those who wait on God are committed to the Word of God. And you have these polar opposites. You have Saul and you have David. Saul does what he wants, when he wants, to make sure his kingdom's in control. He doesn't care about the Word of God unless it's convenient to him. And David takes the long route to the kingdom, but he does it through obedience to God. If you're going to wait, on God, in a way that glorifies Him, you've got to be committed to His Word. And you're going to see that all of us in the room can wait in a way that glorifies the God that we worship. So this is going to be a lot of uh, movement today. We're we're getting through a lot of chapters. I want you to hang with me. If you have questions, ask them. Right? That's the benefit of not having a thousand people in the room. Let's have a conversation. If you have something to, to put in, put it in. All right, let's pray. Let's expect God to move. Let's hear what he has for us. Amen. 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 Father, thank you for your word. Help us see how this important truth. Help us grow in your likeness. And ultimately, Lord, help us be a people that cannot wait for your return because it's soon coming. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, we'll start with chapter 18. Chapter 18. Samuel. Samuel the prophet of the day, goes to David in chapter 16, anoints him as the next king. And David's between the ages of 10 to 15. He's a young kid, young boy, but he's going to be the next king. And then in the next chapter, we see David is delivering lunch to his brothers. He hears Goliath and he says, let me go take care of him. And he puts Goliath down. A sling in the stone and the rock goes right through his head. But then you get to chapter 18, and I'm thinking we're going to hear about how David's taken into the palace and he's groomed to be the next king. But that's not what we read. What we see is that David starts to march with the army, and after battle after battle, David just keeps on winning. And the men love him, but not all of them do. And they come up with this song. And in this song, they go, Saul has killed his thousands, but David... His tens of thousands. And it was a top chart uh, topper, number one on the billboard. And they loved singing the song, but one guy didn't love it. And I want you to hear Saul's response. Saul, in 1 Samuel 18, verse 8 and 9, was furious and resented this song. They credited tens of thousands to David, he complained, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul watched David jealously From that day on, you cannot wait for God if you're busy building your own kingdom. If you're doing what you want to do, you will not wait on God. Saul never waits on God. Because God doesn't get on his time schedule. And here, you see this division grow between David and Saul. David's brought in, he's playing his music for Saul. Saul gets jealous, he takes a spear throws it at David. David's like, well, maybe he just had a bad day. He stays around, throws another spear at him. He's like, I'm out. Playing music for the king. The king gets jealous, throws a spear at David. And then we <laughs> keep reading. David or Saul takes another approach. and goes, you know what? If I can't kill him, our enemies can. And he puts him on the front lines with the Philistines. And yet every time he fights, he wins. And we read in verse 15 of chapter 18, when Saul observed that David was very successful, he dreaded him. And he's like, all right, fine, I've got one more last effort. I'll say, David, you can marry my daughter. I forgive you. We we can forget what has happened. You can marry my daughter. All I need is for you to kill 100 Philistines. And Saul's thinking one out of 100 should be able to kill David. He's just a young dude. There's one Philistine out there that should be able to kill him. Well, David marches out against the enemy and strikes down 200. And he comes back and listen to the conclusion of chapter 18. Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michal loved him. And he became even more afraid of David. Do you see a problem there? He recognized that the Lord was with David. And yet, what was Saul's response? Terrified. Terrified. Want nothing to do with David. As a result, Saul was David's enemy from then on. So, for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, you will see Saul hunting David down, trying to kill him. He doesn't like what God is doing. Remember, if you're going to wait on God, you have to be consumed with the glory of God. If it's about your schedule, you will live a frustrated life. We get to chapter 19 Saul's son Jonathan. He's the next in line to be king. David's a threat to his kingdom. And yet, Jonathan becomes David's best friend. And it's an amazing thing what Jonathan does. In 19, verse 4 and 5, we read this. Jonathan spoke well to David, his father Saul. He said to him, The king should not sin against his servant David. He hasn't sinned against you. In fact, his actions have been a great advantage to you. He took his life in his hands when he struck down the Philistine and the Lord brought a great victory for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. So why would you sin against innocent blood by killing David for no reason? But this doesn't last. While Saul's persuaded by this moment, later on he's like, nope, I'm going to take him out. David's at home with Saul's daughter, his wife. And the wife hears about it. They lower David through the window. Saul asks, why have you done this to me? David's wife says, he threatened my life. And that's the last time you see David with his wife and Macau. Michal is taken by Saul given to another man to marry and now Saul thinks he has a reason to go after David. He threatened my daughter, nobody threatens my daughter. And he runs after David. And then you get to chapter 20. Chapter 20, Saul throws a feast. He invites David in as basically camouflage. Maybe David will come in and eat and while he's not paying attention, I'll put him down. So David doesn't show up. And it's Jonathan, Saul's son, that says, "Hey, go hide. I'll talk to my father and I'll see his intention. Jonathan finds out that Saul is going to kill him. He runs to David. David, you got to get out of here. And David flees. And so three chapters, four chapters after he takes out Goliath, David is not even welcomed in Israel. Now, you think waiting is difficult. He was told he's going to be king and he's not even in the country. Waiting's hard, isn't it? So David keeps on on the run. You get to chapter 22 and David is in the cave of Adullam. In the cave of Adullam. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and 2. So David left Gath, took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his fathers and his whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. I hope you have family like that. I, I hope the church is like that for you. David's hiding in a cave. Things are not going according to plan. But when his brothers and his fathers and his family heard about this, they go down to him and join him. But that's not only who joins him. Check out who God brings around him. Now, I don't think this is who David would have picked if he's in the palace. But this is exactly who David needs around him at this time. And verse 2, In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, and discontented rallied around him. And he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. Isn't it amazing what God can do in a cave? David doesn't have a military until he goes to a cave. And then some desperate men that are in debt and discontented say, Hey, I'm going to go with David. And that's exactly who God uses. But unfortunately, while hiding in the cave, he can't stay hidden. He goes to a city named Nob, and there, there's a priest. And while he talks to the priest, he gets some bread. And, and guess what the bread's called? It's called the bread of presence. The ba- bread of presence. It represents the presence of God. And I, and I want you to, to see this. He's, he's here, he gets to this priest of, of Nob, and he gets this bread of presence. And then uh, he doesn't have a weapon because he was on the run. And he asks the priest, do you have any weapons? He's like, I only have one sword that we've left here as a basically a memorial of what God has done, and it's the sword of Goliath. And David's like, perfect, I'll take it. There's not another sword like it. And so David's visiting this priest while he's on the run. His men are starving. He doesn't have any weapons. And he gets the bread of presence. and he gets the sword of Goliath. Why is that important? It was a reminder to David while he was on the run and things were not going according to plan, that his God was with him. And God's presence made all the difference. And then you have this sword that's with you now, and it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. Hey, Goliath didn't take you down, neither will Saul. I am with you, I will keep my word. You see how powerful that is? Well, Saul hears that, David went to this priest in the city of Nob. He tracks him down. David's long gone by the time he shows up, but the priest is still there. And Saul's mad. And his anger is burning against this priest. And so he puts all of the priest's family to death. Saul, still not waiting on God. Then you get to chapter 23, and there's a city of Keilah. And while in this city, the Philistines are there attacking the city, and David's only two miles away and David inquires of the Lord, Lord, do I go down and attack this? And God says, go, go and rescue this city. And so he tells the men, right, these discontented, bankrupt dudes, hey, we got a mission, let's go. And the men respond, hey, we're terrified in this cave, let alone going down to a city being attacked by the Philistines. David's like, you're right. So he goes back and inquires of God again and and listen to what God says. Once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go at once to Keilah, for I will hand the Philistines over to you. Then David and his men went to Keilah, fought against the Philistines, drove their livestock away, inflicted heavy losses on them. So David rescued the city. Now I have a question. I don't know. There's, there's no description there. But David inquires of the Lord, then he talks to his men, his men are scared. He's like, You're right, let me go back to God. And God gets the final word. I don't know how David was able to persuade the men to let's go fight this battle. But I do know this, David was certain that the God that was with him, with the lion, the bear, and the giant, was with him in this city. And he was able to lead men to go do what they didn't want to do for the glory of God. That's leadership. That's what leadership looks like. God, are you sure this is what you want? Because I'm about to put these men's lives at risk. This is really what you want. And then when he was sure, they got after it. Now, you don't do anything like this without the king of the land finding out. Saul finds out. And he starts to chase him. And he chases him from city to city, from wilderness to wilderness. And I think it was interesting. Saul searched for him. You see this in 23, verse 14. David was in the wilderness strongholds, and Saul searched for him every day, but God did not hand David over to him. Every day, this king and about 3,000 men are searching for one guy. It's a massive manhunt. And nobody can find him, but there was one guy that could find him. You guys remember Jonathan, the king's son, David's best friend? He's able to find him in the wilderness. And listen to the description. If you're taking notes, 1 Samuel 23, 16, these are the type of friends you need. So then Saul's son, Jonathan, came to David in Horus, which is in the wilderness, and encouraged him in the faith in his God. He pumps some life into him. David's a desperate man on the run for his life. And here comes Jonathan, hey, remember your God, and he speaks power into his faith. So remember who God is and remember what you're called to do. It's an amazing thing to have friends that will fan the flame to get after God. I hope you have friends like that. We keep going. You see David's narrow escape in 23. I'm going to read this to us. 1 Samuel 23, 26-29. to 29. I want you just to, to get a mental picture. Saul's on one side of this mountain and David's on the other. And David's tired. Listen to what happens. Saul went along one side of the mountain, and David and his men went along the other side. Even though David was hurrying to get away from Saul, Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Then a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, because the Philistines have raided the land. So Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to engage the Philistines. Therefore, that place was named the Rock of Separation. From there, David went up and stayed in the strongholds of En I love that. David names the place as a reminder of God's faithfulness, the rock of separation. You see a psalm from David in Psalm 40. This is a side note. Psalm 41 through 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me to hear my cry for help. Can you imagine the dust that you're leaving behind, but you're not getting away from your enemy. Your enemy's catching you. And so he's calling out to God, and at the right time, God hears and sends help. Oh, there's a messenger. How does the messenger catch Saul? Saul's catching David. I think it's because God heard David's cry. And at the right time, he was rescued. David goes on in this. He brought me up from the desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. I don't know about you, but that's where we need to be standing. It's not a rock of separation. It's the rock of ages. It's the rock that the builders rejected, the cornerstone, and His name is Jesus. And what you'll find is when you're in a pit and you think you've hit rock bottom, if your feet land on Christ, you can get out of that pit because God hears your cry. And His arm is able to save all who call on Him. I love this testament, the rock of separation. The Lord has heard my cry. Then you get to 1 Samuel 24. This is an amazing chapter. So you guys know David is in, in Gedi, hiding out in these caves. Saul hears about it. He always finds out where David's hiding. So David's constantly having to rely on God to do something. Well, here Saul takes again his 3,000 men. And you guys can see, I'm, not, I'm going to try to summarize this best I can. Saul's going. He's passing up uh, some of the sheep folds and he sees this cave and he has to go to the bathroom. The Bible puts it has to relieve himself. It's the wrong time to have to go to the restroom. He picks the wrong cave. He goes into this cave. Now listen, you talk about vulnerable. This would be terrifying. He picks the cave that David and his men are hiding in. Now we see how evil Saul is. And we see what Saul has done to David. And so David's men say, hey, the Lord has given you your enemy. Wipe him out today. And David goes up behind Saul and he just cuts a piece of the robe. And it says that his conscience bothered him. And he goes back to the men and he says, listen, you cannot raise a hand against the Lord's anointed." God will take care of Saul, but it's not for me to take his life. So Saul finishes, he goes on, and as he gets some distance, David comes out and says, Saul, why are you coming after me? Look, I am not against you. I could have taken your life, but I've spared you. Know that I am not your enemy. And the Bible talks about how from then on Saul goes home and David goes on to hide. But it's not the last time David spares his life. Isn't that amazing thing? You've been waiting for an opportunity to get Saul. And if you take out Saul, guess who becomes king? David. Man, he had a quick path, didn't he? It reminds me of another king that had a quick path without pain and suffering. It reminds me of Jesus, right? He's tempted by Satan. Hey, you can have all of this. But Jesus refuses and he goes to the cross because there's no kingdom without the cross. There's no kingdom without the empty tomb. Waiting is not easy, but it's possible. Then you get to the chapter 25 and you have David, a guy named Nabal, and Abigail. So David finally goes back out to the wilderness and he surrounds this guy named Nabal, wealthy dude, has a lot of sheep, has a lot of livestock, a lot of food has a vineyard, has a bunch of people working for him. And David encircles him, and the shepherds love David. Because as long as David and his men encircled the sheep, nothing bothered them. And David knew how to protect sheep. And one of the shepherds said, hey, David and his men, they're like a wall around us. We're not missing nothing. We're gro- everything is prospering. Like We are having great success. Then it came time to give thanks for the year that they had. And Nabal is what they are called shearing the sheep, right? You're getting everything together. You're about ready to throw a party of celebration about what has happened. And David sends a messenger, hey, ask Nabal if he'll give us some food for our men. And Nabal's like, who is this guy? Who's trying to bum off me now? He tells the servant to get lost. (laughs) The servant goes back and tells David, and David's like, all right, fellas, get your swords. Let's go. David is about to wipe out Nabal and his whole crew and as he's on his way there's this lady named Abigail that hears about it this is Nabal's wife we're going to talk a little bit more about her in a little bit but just know this she gets everything prepared and I mean it is a spread and she brings it to David before he gets to Nabal and David listens to her and David's kept from doing evil and he goes back and Nabal throws that party. But guess what happens 10 days after the party? The Bible says his heart stopped. He has a heart attack and dies. David, when he heard of Nabal, was dead. He said, Blessed be the Lord who championed my cause against Nabal's insults and restrained his servant from doing evil. The Lord brought Nabal's evil deeds back on his own head. You see, it's an amazing thing, and and you see this right here. David wanted vengeance now. He wanted to make things right now. But God said, no, you need to wait 10 more days. Now, it's not hard to wait 10 more days if you know what's going to happen. But isn't it hard when you think someone might get away with something? It's hard not to stand up and take vengeance yourself, isn't it? Waiting's hard. David's committed to the Word of God. When he heard it spoken from the mouth of Abigail, he remembered who God was and what he called him to do. And he was kept from doing evil. And I think this comes right in time because David gets another chance at Saul. Saul hears about where he's at. He gets his 3,000 men and he starts to go after David again. This time, there's a huge camp. Saul's in the middle of the camp. And all of his soldiers are around him protecting him. And yet David finds out where Saul's at now. And David and this guy named Abishai. Now, real quick, Abishai is not a soft dude. Abishai is one of David's mighty men. Listen to an account that that we get of Abishai. Abishai, Joab's brother, the son of Zariah, was the leader of the three. This guy you don't want to mess with. He's a Navy SEAL on steroids. And we keep reading about him. He wielded a spear against 300 men and killed them, gathering a reputation among the three. He doesn't lose in battle. And so David's like, hey, I'm going to go down to Saul. It's in the middle of the camp. It's a little bit scary. Does anybody want to go with me? Abishai's like, I'll go. They take off. They sneak up. And there's Saul sleeping. And there's a water jug and the spear is stuck in the ground right by his head. And I want you to remember, what was that spear used for? Remember when David was playing music, the spear was thrown at him. That same spear now sitting right there, and Abishai's like, Hey, David, just give me the word. I'll put that spear through his head. And then he goes, I won't miss. Truer words were not spoken. David knows he can take a shortcut again to the throne. What do you think David does? Saves his life. He says, No, Abishai, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to take the spear in the water jug and take off. And they cross and they say they put a considerable amount of ground between him and King Saul. And then David yells out to Saul. And he goes, listen, if I wanted you dead, I could have. But know this, this is your spear and your water jug. I'm not sinning against you. And then we see Saul finally relents and, and flees. And David goes to the land of the Philistines. David gets to the point where he's like, this guy's not going to stop chasing me. He changes his mind, then he changes his mind again. I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines, to Gath, where Goliath was from. And he's like, at least if I'm there, Saul won't chase me. And it's true. Saul quits chasing him. Now, can you imagine David's journey? All of that time, almost losing your life again and again and again, having a promise of a kingdom from God. How is David able to do this. And then we see in chapter 28, the battle lines are drawn again. The Philistines are attacking God's people and Saul's leading God's people. And he calls out to God, but he's just trying to use God to get a battle plan. And so he goes to a medium, calls up a spirit. He finds out that he's going to lose his life. In chapter 29, David's trying to go out to do battle. And the Philistines like, you can't go with us. You're one of them. They send him home. And then you get to uh, Chapter 30, David's walking with this king, Achish, and he's found favor in his eyes, gained his trust, but nobody else the Philistines trusts him. And so he goes out with him. He's sent home. In the meantime, his family's kidnapped. And all of his men with him, their families are kidnapped by the Amalekites. Amalekites take them, all of their property, and they're gone. And so David comes back, and there's a desperation that we haven't seen in David. His men that have been hiding with him and on the run with him for years now threaten to kill him. The Bible says it's a bitterness of soul. And you want to know who David turns to in that? He turns to his God. And God says, hey, let's go get your kids back. Let's go get your family back. That's exactly what David does. He starts chasing them. 200 men get too tired. They stay camp. The other 400 go. They overtake the Amalekites and they bring back the family. Not one of them was lost. But in the most desperate situation in David's life, he knew exactly who to turn to. Turns to his God. And then you get to chapter 31, back at the battle lines between the Philistines and the Israelites. Saul's wiped out. And so are his boys. Jonathan's killed in battle. And you can read that on your own. It's an amazing thing. There's a group of men that have some courage. that go and get the bodies down from being hung up all over to intimidate God's people. But that's how 1 Samuel ends. God's people defeated. David living in with the Philistines. And King Saul and his boys dead. It doesn't seem like God's keeping His promises, does it? And you want to know what? There's still a civil war that's about to break out before David finally gets to be king. What David teaches us here is how to wait on God. We're going to go back. Remember those first four points. All right. First four points. Those who wait on God are consumed with the glory of God. Those who wait on God are consumed with the glory of God. You saw how Saul... Would not wait. Would not wait. As a matter of fact, he lost the kingdom because Samuel didn't show up fast enough. It was a different schedule. So now I want you to think in your own life. Is your life geared to the glory of God, or do you live to the glory of yourself? Is it about making much of you? Is it about your money, your success, getting what you want? My way or the highway is not the pathway to wait on God. And yet many are on that road. Saul could not wait on God because he had a different agenda. Now David, David said, God, what do you have for me? You want me to go and kill a giant? I'll go and kill a giant. You want me to hide in a cave? I'll go and hide in a cave. You want me to run to this land? I'll run to this land. Because for David, it was about the glory of God. You want to know there's a New Testament example of this. Remember Paul in the New Testament? I would not want to have Paul's life given a mission by God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And listen to what happens to Paul. And I think this is key to waiting. In 2 Timothy 2, we read, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, (laughs) descended from David, according to my gospel, for which I suffered to the point of being bound like a criminal, Paul's in chains, and his conclusion is, but the Word of God is not bound. And then we keep reading in Philippians 1, 12 and 13. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me is actually advanced the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. He's in prison, and yet he's rejoicing that the mission's going forward, the kingdom's expanding, the gospel is spreading. Paul is a man that is after God. He's consumed with the glory of Jesus. So even if he's rotting in prison, he's rejoicing in his God. You see, waiting is possible when our lives are about the glory of God because you can glorify God in waiting. You can't build your own kingdom waiting, but you can glorify God waiting. And often, he causes people to wait. Paul's conclusion, and I hope this is our conclusion, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What Paul is saying is no matter what you have for me, God, I'm going to make much of Jesus. And when I die, I'm going to be in His presence. That's how you wait on God. Be consumed with the glory of God. That's what we call worship. Number two, those who wait on God are connected to the people of God. You have Jonathan who strengthened David's faith when he needed it most. You've got to have guys like that. That's what a good teammate is. Hey man, get back to walking with Jesus. Get back to doing what He's called you to do. Remember who God is, that He's with His people. Fan it in the flame. And then you have Abigail. Abigail who goes to David and says, why would you do this? God has protected you this far from your enemy. Why would you come and put this man to death because you're mad at him? Remember who God is. And David was able to respond in a way that brought glory to God. You see, David was connected to the people of God. You cannot wait in a vacuum. We desperately need each other. And all of us have to wait on something or someone. And those are hard seasons. An encouraging word comes from God's people and if we're not encouraging we're wasting our time we got to build people up waiting is very very difficult David knew how to rely on the people of God number three those who wait on God are content with the presence of God when David was at his lowest he knew who to turn to Remember, after the Amalekites have kidnapped his family, I want you to hear David's response in verse 6. If you're taking notes, write this one down. 1 Samuel 30, verse 6. There's no one else to turn to. His family are go- is gone. His men are about to kill him. I want you to hear how David responds. David was in an extremely difficult position. That is putting it lightly. David is in an extremely difficult position. Because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength, and the Lord is God. When David was at his lowest, he knew exactly who to turn to. He's a man on the run by himself, but he's not alone. The God that said that you're the next king, and this will be your kingdom, is still with him. If you can remember the presence of God, you can wait, even when it's difficult. On a lighter note, we used to have to do field trips at Thomas More. We went to the Cathedral Basilica for a tour. It's a pretty building. That's not what I enjoy doing. We went to, I I had to take a music appreciation class and I enjoy music but not necessarily classical music. Definitely not the opera. And as a field trip we had to go to an opera And I'm dreading both of those field trips. But you want to know what made both of those trips less painful? I was able to take a friend. Guess who was also at Thomas More? Julianne. I said, Jules, we could make this a date if you wanted to go. And her going made the trip bearable. Her presence made both of those things actually enjoyable. It's an amazing thing what somebody's presence can do. And that's exactly what David found out here. Nothing was going right for him. But God's presence made all the difference. And that's not unique to David. Jesus promises to be with his people every second of our lives. And if we remember that God is with us, we can wait in a way that brings him glory. Those who wait on God are content with the presence of God. And then finally... Those who wait on God are committed to the word of God. Man, it would have been easy for David to wipe out Saul, wouldn't it? I mean, you could call it self-defense. The man's hunted down by 3,000 men. The king already threw a spear at David multiple times. David could have made every justification in his own mind to go ahead at the right time with the words of God. And David doesn't push her aside. He listens and repents. You see, if we're going to wait in a way that honors God, it's going to require obedience to the Word of God. And I'll just, use, I'll just use one example. In our day and time, we think we can say however we want, whenever we want, when it comes to sex. All right? So God has created this good gift, and He says it's supposed to be in the bounds of marriage. And so now the challenge is to wait. Right, And we can either listen and obey the words of God or not. But you can wait in such a way that glorifies God. Now, friends and culture and media won't ask you to wait like that. But I promise you, those who wait on God will be happy. Actually, I don't. God's word promises you that. Another part, there was a guy that was uh, married and he wasn't happy. They were going through a rough spot in their marriage. And he says, Ben, I just need a break. I need, I need to get away. And of course, about that time, there's a Facebook friend request from a high school sweetheart that pops up. Uh, by the way, I cannot stand Facebook for, that's a different sermon. <laughs> high school sweetheart, and he comes to me, and goes, Ben, doesn't God want me to be happy? And I would say, yeah, God wants you to be happy, but it's in God. He's more concerned with your holiness. And I just asked him, I asked him, you need to kill that, get off Facebook, and stick it out with your wife. And it's an amazing thing the seasons don't last forever, there's ups and downs to every marriage. Waiting requires obedience to God. And he just waited. He waited for the feelings to return. He remained faithful to God and faithful to his wife. And I wish that was everybody's story, but it's not. And so those are two things. Those are two hot topics, right? Sex until marriage and then faithful marriages. Those aren't very cool to say anymore, but you know what? If you're going to wait in a way that honors God, you've got to be obedient to the Word of God. It could be a promotion. Think about it. You could talk bad about the guy ahead of you, Take his job. But that's not how the people of God wait. And it goes on and on and on. But I do know this. Waiting is very, very difficult. But there's a way in which the people of God are supposed to wait. And it's always to the glory of God. And I'm going to leave you with this. Did you know all of us in the room are waiting on someone? The Bible has two verses. Philippians 3.20 and Hebrews 9.26-28 says, But our citizenship is in heaven... And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say that because for Paul, that was always on his mind. When's the last time you thought about Jesus coming back for his people? Coming back for us? Another way to put it is in Hebrews. But now Jesus has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Right? He goes to the cross. He pays for your sin, for my sin. For anyone who turns to Him, our sins covered by His blood. And just as it is appointed for people to die once and after that judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him. Can you imagine if we were there 2,000 years ago? You see, the people of God were waiting for a Messiah hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and then Jesus shows up. And then He's crucified, and like, gosh, I thought this was the Christ. I thought this was the guy who was going to deliver us. But they only had to wait three days until Jesus came back on, rose from the grave. And then He's walking with the people for 40 days. there's about 500 people around Him, and He just starts ascending into the heavens. And an angel has to show up because the people can't stop staring. And the angel says, what are you doing? You got a mission from him. Don't worry, just as he went, he'll be coming back. And this is what I wonder. How many of us are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return? Because make no mistake, God keeps his promises. David had to wait 15 years before he realized being king. Do you know that? Promised, We'll say he was promised at the age of 15. For 15 years, he's on the run, almost losing his life again and again and again. But in 15 years, God keeps his promises. The people of God in the Old Testament, 40 years in the wilderness before they reach the land. Abraham's given a promise that he'll have a son. And his descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. Abraham's a hundred years old before he has his son. But you want to know what's never failed? When God makes a promise, He keeps it. Now, it's been almost 2,000 years since Jesus walked this planet. But make no mistake, He's coming back. And when He comes back, He's saving all those who are waiting for Him. My question is, are you waiting for him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of David. But most importantly, I thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that you show us and teach us how to wait. I pray that we encourage one another because, Lord, there's a lot of difficulty in this room. There's a lot of people in this room waiting on things. And Lord, it's easy to talk about it, but it's hard to walk through those seasons. So, Father, I pray that they realize that you are with them, that they don't go through this alone. I pray that they love your presence. I pray that they focus on your glory. I pray that the church encourages each other. And Lord, I pray that we are eagerly awaiting your return. It's in your name we pray. Amen.